Well, good morning. This has been a, uh, an interesting week for me. Um, it started out last Sunday when uh, I had the privilege of taking off after church, um, heading home, loading up my truck, and going to pick up a, another young man named Gabe. And he and I took off on the 14 north to the 395 north to Lone Pine, turned left, and went to Mount Whitney. And we decided uh, months ago that we were going to try and climb this mountain. We decided, and, and maybe I decided, um, that I really wanted to do this. Why? I have no idea. It was a decision. It was maybe, maybe in hindsight, a rash decision. Um, but it was a decision nonetheless. Spent six months exercising, exercising, not training, exercising. Um, got the map. Here it is, the map. Okay. Have been on the trail a few times and decided that, you know, this is not so bad. We can do this. Recruited my now future son-in-law, Alec, to go with. And he drove up on Monday night. We're excited. We're eating dinner. We're planning. We're talking. We're carbo-loading, right? And deciding this is going to happen tomorrow morning. Tuesday morning, get up 2.30 in the morning. Get on the trail at 3.30 in the morning. We start our hike. It's dark. It's cold. We have our packs on. We have our headlamps on. And we're going. At 6.30, we're on the map, right about here, okay? A lot of squiggly lines on this map, okay? Those squiggly lines, they're switchbacks. A switchback goes uphill. There are other squiggly lines on the map that represent about 100 feet of elevation gain for every squiggly line. The closer the squiggly lines are together, the steeper the climb, just so you know. Um, 6.30 in the morning, we're watching the sunrise as it hits Mount Whitney at Mirror Lake. I have the photos to prove it, and they are beautiful. We decide to repack our water, get some more water in our packs, and, and, and get some food in us and energy, and we're still fresh, we're still energized, we're still excited, we keep going. At 9.30, we're now at trail camp. This is at the bottom of the switchbacks, the infamous switchbacks. There are 99 of them. And there is a 2,000-foot elevation gain over the course of those 99 switchbacks. And you're going from 11,500 feet to 13,777 feet. How do I know that? I read the signs. I had planned how to do this. I had planned it. We're going to stop every 10 switchbacks, take a you know, one-minute, two-minute break, Refuel and then keep going 10 more switchbacks and we do that 10 times. We're going to get to the top of these switchbacks at switchback number 90 We're still feeling pretty good. This is good. This is good. We're doing good at switchback number 92 What are we thinking? At switchback number 94 Are we there yet? No, we have five more to go at switchback number 98 you turn the corner and then it is probably about a mile, eh, maybe not quite, but of just straight uphill at 13,000 feet up to about 
I don't know, 13777. And then you come to the top of the trail, trail crest. And at trail crest, you see a panoramic view of Sequoia National Park like you have never seen before. That switchback hike took three hours. We are now an hour behind schedule. And I knew it because that's not part of the plan. The plan was to get up the switchbacks in two hours. It took us three. I don't know what happened to the plan, but my plan somehow got foiled. Now we're at the top of the switchbacks. We're at Trail Crest at 12.30 instead of 11.30. We go to the junction of John Muir Trail, and then from there we can see Mount Whitney. And you can see it. It's 1.9 miles away. It's so close. On this 11-mile trail, we have gone 9.1 miles. We are there. We are almost there. We go around the corner, and it's just rocks, just jumbled rocks on the trail. My plan, in my effort, in my thinking, in my preparation, was to make it to the top of Mount Whitney by no later than 1 o'clock. It's 12.30. We have 1.9 miles to go. It's 14,000 feet elevation. You do the math. It's not going to happen. We try anyway. Because we're young. We're healthy. Well, they're young. They're healthy. And I can follow them. Or lead them and they'll push me or something. So we go. We continue. And we go and we continue and we go and we continue. And on my map... You start here, you follow this trail, and you get to the top, and you go, and you go, and right there, there's the top of Mount Whitney. That's as far as we got. At that point, we ran out of gas, we ran out of time, and we ran out of good weather. And it was that decision that my plan and my human effort came to an end. We couldn't make it. We could not make it to the top of Mount Whitney. We made it to 14,100 feet of 14,508. We made it 10 and a half of the 11 miles. But there was no possible way we were going to go that last half mile. There was just no way. At that point, we ended up turning around and heading down. Now, you would think that going downhill is easier, right? Not so much. And unfortunately, I caused Alex's dad a wee bit of concern because I said, oh, yeah, we'll be back by 8 o'clock tonight. 8 o'clock rolled around, we're still about four miles away. 9 o'clock rolled around, we're still about two miles away. 10 o'clock rolled around, we're now about a half mile away. At 10.15, he's walking up the trail looking for us. Thankfully, we're walking down and meet him. And he's like, thank goodness you guys are okay. We made it down. We survived. I say that to illustrate the reality that just as we were unable in our human efforts to get to the top of Mount Whitney, so are we unable to get to God by our own human efforts. There is no possible way We can come to God. There's no possible way we are going to be able to enter into his kingdom with our effort. We're going to run out of time. 
We're going to run out of energy, and we're going to run out of good weather. It's just not going to happen. We need the gospel. We need the gospel as unbelievers. We need the gospel even more as believers. Today, what I would like to talk about, and what I'd like to do is ask and answer three questions about the gospel. I'm going to ask three questions about the gospel, and then I'm going to answer each of those questions. The first question I want to ask is simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The second one, what does the gospel do? And thirdly, as response to that, what are we supposed to do with the gospel? So what is the gospel? What does the gospel do? And what are we supposed to do with the gospel? If you have your Bibles, turn them open to Romans 3. We've been spending a lot of time in the youth ministry and the student ministries in Romans lately. And uh, we're actually past Romans 3, finally. We're actually into Romans 9 now. Um, But this section of Romans 3 that I'd like to read this morning really gets into the heart of the gospel. And we're going to be in this section to answer the second question. But I still want to read it first in preparation to understand what is the gospel. Romans 3. Paul writes, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If we are going to understand the gospel, we need to understand this text. This text really is the heart of the gospel. But first, I want to ask ask and answer that first question. I want to answer that first question. What is the gospel? Number one, the gospel is... God's plan of reconciliation. The gospel is God's plan of reconciliation. There is no man-made plan here. Because if there was a man-made plan, it would fail. It would fail. This is God's plan. God started it all the way back in the garden. The first hint we have of the gospel comes in Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 15, where God is speaking to the serpent, and he's cursing the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, but you will bruise him on the heel. That is a foreshadowing of the cross. That is the the proto-evangelium, the prototype of the gospel. That is the gospel seed planted in the garden. For us. This is God's plan. 
He carries it on through the law and the prophets. And in Jeremiah, he gives us a little fuller revelation of that plan. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, he made these other covenants. He made this covenant with Noah that he's not going to destroy the earth again by water. He made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to give them a land, many nations out of them, and he's going to give them a bless, be a blessing through them. He made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites in Mount Sinai that if you obey the law, then I will make you a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. He made a covenant with David that a a, a man of David's family would be sitting on the throne forever. And then ultimately, he made a new covenant. And this is what it says. It is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and, I, and their sin I will remember no more. Ezekiel puts it a little differently in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Ezekiel says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I am not doing this for your sake declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This is God's plan for God's purposes, for God's glory. We can't do this. We cannot do this on our own. Remember in Pentecost when Peter was preaching in Acts 2, verses 21 and following, he says, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jump down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
This is God's plan for his son. This is God's plan of reconciliation for us through his son. Peter repeats it again in Acts 3. Just we're going to read verse 18. He says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. This is not my plan. This is not your plan. This is not anybody's plan. This is God's gospel. This is God's plan of reconciliation. Not only that, it is also God's good news to humanity. The gospel is God's good news to humanity. Just like the angels announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, in the same region, when there were shepherds, they were staying and, and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Mark records for us in Mark 1 that Jesus came preaching the gospel. Mark 1.14 now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. God announces it through angels to shepherds, his plan of redemption, this good news. And then Jesus himself comes to the people and preaches the gospel, the good news. God announces it by angels to shepherds. He announces it through his son to humanity. Israel. Well, not only is it God's plan of reconciliation, the gospel is God's plan of reconciliation, God's good news to humanity. It's also, thirdly, God's power on display in man. It is God's power on display in man. Going back to Acts chapter 9, after Stephen is stoned, there is a great persecution that breaks out. And all of the disciples and many of the people scatter in order to get the gospel out. And there's a guy named Philip. I'm sorry. And there's a, I'm sorry, there's a guy named Saul. This Saul is going to persecute the church. He gets letters. He starts going to Damascus. And he is on his way to begin persecuting the church. But something radical happens to him on the way. You know the story. He sees a blinding light that knocks him off his horse. And he, he hears a voice calling his name. And he asks, who is it? And he says, it is me, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He goes into Damascus. And he's staying at this house. And he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Trying to figure out what just happened. I thought I was on God's side, and yet I can't be persecuting the church? And then he, God talks to a man named Ananias, and he says to Ananias, go over to the street called Straight, to this and such and such a house, because there's a man there named Saul, and I want you to 
talk to him. And Ananias says to God, really? Uh, Isn't this the guy that was persecuting the church? Listen to what the Lord says to Ananias in Acts chapter 9. He says, the Lord says to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine, specifically chosen by God. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Wow, that sounds like a great job. But wait, there's more. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God put his power in dis- on display in Saul's life. In Paul's life, after that conversion, going on in verse 19, he says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. This is Saul. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. There is a radical transformation in Paul's life. There is a radical change. The power of God on display in man. That is what the gospel is. Paul understood that when he wrote the the book or the letter to the church in Rome. And it's, it's his thesis statement for the entire book. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Paul lived out this power. He understood this power. He was, God's power was on display through Paul because of the gospel. Well, now that we know what the gospel is, let's answer that second question. What does the gospel do? Lewis Berry Schaefer, the great theologian at Dallas Seminary, uh, many years ago wrote of a list of 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation. Don't worry, we're not going to go through them. But I do want to look at seven things from this text in Romans 3 that the heart of the gospel reveals. The heart of the gospel reveals at least seven things in our lives, according to this text. Let's look at Romans 3, starting verse 19. Number one, the gospel reveals sin. The gospel reveals sin. Look at verses 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The gospel reveals sin. No one is declared righteous before God by observing the law. I can't do it on my own. I cannot get to God. Only exact and perfect conformity to the law of God is acceptable. And we're not just talking the Ten Commandments. There are more laws that God gave throughout history. 
anything less than perfect conformity is imperfection. And that is sin. And that is ultimately failure. And you can't get there. You might get within 400 feet. You might get within a half a mile. But you're not going to get there on your own. The gospel reveals that to us. Well, the second thing that the gospel reveals is that the gospel reveals righteousness. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Who are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? There is a righteousness from God that is apart from the law. That is nothing less, no one less than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, writes this. He says, because we cannot attain a sufficient righteousness on our own, God has provided it for us. This righteousness from God is none other than the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who, through his sinless life and his death in obedience to the Father's will, perfectly fulfilled the law of God. That is, the righteousness that is a gift from God is a real righteousness, worked out in a real world by a real person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is nothing less than perfect conformity to the law of God over a period of 33 years by the Son of God, who became a human being and lived a perfect life of obedience. You see, we need that. We need Jesus Christ to perfectly fulfill the law of God, both in its requirements and its penalty. He did what Adam failed to do. Render perfect obedience to the law of God. A Scottish uh, theologian and commentator, Robert Haldane, put it this way. To that righteousness is the eye of the believer ever to be directed. On that righteousness must he rest. On that righteousness must he live. On that righteousness must he die. In that righteousness must he appear before the judgment seat. In that righteousness must he stand forever in the presence of a righteous God. The righteousness that he's talking about is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The imputed righteousness means that God covered us literally covered us with a clothing that is the righteousness of Christ, so that when he looks at us, he sees us, and he sees the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61, verse 10, puts it this way. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult with my God, in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is the clothing that we have in Christ. This is the clothing that God gives us in Christ. There is a great exchange that occurs at the cross. My sin for Christ's righteousness. Nothing less than that will allow us to get to God. And it's not by my effort. It is because God does that for me. 
Thirdly, the gospel reveals faith. The gospel reveals faith. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. We are to believe that as the Son of God, Jesus was clothed in our humanity and that he lived a perfect life, died a perfect death on the cross for our sins. And that is good news for sinners. That is good news. John Murray comments on this verse. He says, Paul has already proved that all, both Jews and Gentiles, were under sin. In respect to the power, or in respect to the penal judgment of God, there is no difference. The glory of the gospel is that there is no discrimination in the favorable judgment of God when faith comes into operation. There is no discrimination among believers. The righteousness of God comes upon them all without distinction. We all have the ability to come under the righteousness of God in trust, in faith, in belief of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Remember Acts 16 where Paul and Silas were in jail and they were singing hymns. They were singing hymns. All of a sudden, this earthquake occurs. The jail doors burst open. The Philippian jailer runs in, and i got to kill myself because all the prisoners escaped. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're here. And what happens? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. Paul and Silas were just singing hymns. These gospel songs that we sang today with Josh and Jeremiah are important to remember, to meditate on, and even maybe to sing. Other people hearing those songs may know Christ. As a result of this, as a result of this revealing of faith, I must continue to renounce any confidence in my own goodness. I have nothing good to lean on. I need to kill the idols in my heart. I need to place my confidence solely in Christ every single day. Not only for my eternal salvation, but for my daily acceptance before a holy God. Many of us here read Gospel Treason. Do you remember what uh, the definition of an idol was? How Brad Bigney defined an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. Anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. I think Paul understood this as a Pharisee who was converted by God through the power of the gospel, living out the power of the gospel, when he wrote to the Galatian churches. And he wrote this. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. That was his idol as a Pharisee. The law was his idol. The law was what he lived for. He killed the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, 
then Christ died for nothing. Christ died needlessly. If I could do it on my own, if my plan of salvation for myself would work, I could get to the top on my own power. I wouldn't run out of time. I wouldn't run out of energy. I wouldn't run out of good weather. I could make it, but I can't. Because if I could, then Christ died needlessly. The gospel reveals sin. The gospel reveals righteousness. The gospel reveals faith. Fourthly, the gospel reveals need. The gospel reveals need. This righteousness is available to everyone on the same basis because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The need is universal. The need is universal. Everyone needs the gospel. God's plan of salvation treats all people equally because all people are sinners. If we're going to live by the gospel every day, all tendency to compare ourselves with other believers, not to mention other unbelievers, needs to be put away. We can't compare ourselves to each other. We have to put it away because our need is for a Savior. Fifthly, it reveals access. The gospel reveals access. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ are justified freely by God's grace. The access is, is there. To be justified. What does that mean? What does that term mean? It's kind of a theological term. It's more of a legal term. It is to be absolved from any charge of guilt and to be declared absolutely righteous. It's both to be declared not guilty on the one hand and righteous on the other. If it was just not guilty, there is a potential that you could still be seen as unrighteous. But God doesn't do that. His justification is perfect on both sides of the coin. Not guilty and righteous. Sinners who are guilty of their sin have been declared not guilty, and they have been cleansed from their unrighteousness and made righteous. We must absolutely remember that our justification by God is based solely on the meritorious work of Christ on the cross and our union with him in life, in death, in burial, in resurrection, and in ascension. We are joined with Christ in all of these things. Sixthly, the gospel reveals the source. The gospel reveals the source. The source is, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's the source. The source is the blood of Christ. This word, this propitiation, some of your translations may say uh, sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice. This word propitiation is a very important word. 
Because what it means is that it appeases or it satisfies the wrath of God against sin. It satisfies the wrath of God against sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, satisfied and turned aside the wrath and just and holy wrath of God, which we should have endured. He turned it away. We call that in theology penal substitutionary atonement. And I say those words to you because that is something that we can never let go of. Penal substitutionary atonement means that Christ paid the penalty as our substitute to take away the wrath of God from us. Some people call that cosmic child abuse. They want to get rid of that altogether. A loving God would never do that to his son. The Bible calls it God's perfect plan of redemption. It is God's perfect plan. Two very important points need to be made about this propitiation. Number one, this was God the Father's plan all along. This was his plan all along. God the Father initiated the plan. God the Father provided the sacrifice. God the Father accepted the sacrifice as sufficient to satisfy his justice. To satisfy his wrath. To turn his wrath away from those who come to him in faith and believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Secondly, this propitiation is given to us as sinners through faith in Jesus' blood. It is because of the blood. It is because of his death that the blood of Christ in his death is the object of our faith by which we receive this propitiation, which we receive this atoning sacrifice. We are able to turn away the wrath of God because of Christ. We're going to remember that next week in our communion celebration when we drink that little cup of grape juice representative of the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses our conscience from defilement of sin, according to Hebrews 9.14. It is the blood of Christ that purifies us from all sin, according to 1 John 1.7. It is the blood of Christ that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, the very presence of an infinitely holy God, according to Hebrews 10.10. And it is the blood of Christ, according to the passage before us, that turns the holy and just wrath of God away from us. It's just like the well-known hymn from the 19th century. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The gospel reveals sin, righteousness, faith, need, access, the source. And lastly, it reveals the result. What is the result of the gospel for those who trust, for those who believe? Verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is glorified as being just in his role as the justifier 
of those who trust in Christ for salvation. All the glory goes to God. All of the praise goes to God. God is exalted. God is elevated because of his plan to save sinners. That's what the gospel does. The gospel saves sinners. So we've looked at what the gospel is and we've looked at what the gospel does. Now, what do we do with all of this? What are we supposed to do? Number one, if you have not believed in the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. In Pentecost, in Acts 2, when Peter preached this amazing sermon, as an unlearned man, an uneducated man, people were cut to the quick and they begged him, what must we do to be saved? And what did Peter reply? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin. Put it behind you. Put the cross before you. Make sure that you understand that Jesus Christ is the only name by which we can be saved. If you have not trusted in that name for your salvation, do it now. Do it now. Jerry Bridges, again, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, says this. Jesus, by his death and shed blood, completely satisfied the justice of God and the claims of his broken law. By his perfect obedience, he positively fulfilled the requirements of the law. Thus, in both its precepts and penalty, the law of God in its most exacting requirements was fulfilled by Jesus. And he did this in our place as our representative and our substitute. That is good news for sinners who don't know how to get to God. My plan won't get them there. Your plan won't get them there. Their plan won't get them there. God's plan will. Secondly, what are we supposed to do with this gospel? If you have believed in the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation, get baptized. If you have not been baptized, get baptized. Make that public announcement. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. Remember Philip? After this persecution that broke out, after the, the stoning of Stephen, Philip and some others went out and they, Philip went to Samaria. Then he went down and preached the gospel in Samaria and many were converted. Then he goes down towards Gaza. And as he's running along the road, an Ethiopian eunuch is in a chariot reading Isaiah 53. Philip runs up next to him. Can you just see the picture? This chariot going on and Philip just kind of jogging up next to him. Hey, what you reading? Oh, Isaiah 53. Do you understand what you're reading? No. Really? I can help you. Philip gets into the chariot. He's talking through Isaiah 53 with this Ethiopian eunuch. And lo and behold, the Lord opens up the heart of that eunuch to understand who Jesus is as Messiah, as Savior. And he repents and believes and trusts in Christ for salvation. And as they are going along, the Ethiopian eunuch looks off and says, Hey, there's some water over there. What is preventing me from being baptized? The answer, nothing. So they go down and they get bap- he gets baptized. If you have not been baptized, see me. We can talk about it. We'll figure out a time. Maybe you can come over to my house with the church and, and I'll dunk you in my cold swimming pool. We'll do it there. But get baptized. And thirdly, 
and I think most importantly, if you've done those things, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've been baptized, even if you haven't been baptized and you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of the Westminster Chapel back in the 20th century, died in 1981, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And in this book, he talks about uh, this matter of spiritual depression. I just want to read you a short excerpt. He writes, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. And defy other people. And defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, this psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the help of my countenance and my God. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves. If you haven't read Gospel Treason, read it. Brad Bigney talks about this very concept in that book on identifying the idols of your heart and putting them down. Not letting them talk to you and control you, but you take control of them. John Owen put it this way, be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. Don't let the sinful attitudes of your heart take over. Take control of them. Preach the Gospel to yourself. Jerry Bridges, in his book, again, The Discipline of Grace, gives us eight 
things to remember when you preach the gospel to yourself. Please don't try to write these eight things down. I'm going to get them into the newsletter so you'll have them in the newsletter next week because these are long. I just want you to listen. Listen to these eight things. Preaching the gospel to yourself means, number one, you continually own up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteousness. I think we've talked about that enough during our sermon this morning, how the blood of Christ is what saves. Flee to him. Number two, you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. You don't have anything to worry about. Number three, preaching the gospel to yourself means you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, 7, and 8. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Preaching the gospel to yourself means, number four, you believe the testimony of God found in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You believe, number five, that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, as Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13. Preaching the gospel to yourself means you believe he forgave all your sins, as Colossians 1.22 reminds us. Preaching the gospel to yourself means you appropriate by faith the words of Isaiah 53.6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And lastly, you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, and that he has blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. That's what preaching the gospel to yourself means. We've seen that the gospel is God's plan of reconciliation, God's good news to humanity, and God's power on display in mankind. We've seen that the gospel reveals sin, righteousness, faith, need, access, the source, and its ultimate result, the glory of God. And as a result of hearing the gospel, we must repent and believe, be baptized, and preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. The saving righteousness of God is taught in the Old Testament, and it's more clearly taught in the gospel. The saving righteousness of God comes only from Jesus Christ to those who bow the knee to him and him alone. The saving righteousness of God comes only from the death of Jesus Christ as our propitiation. And this revealed righteousness of God proves that God is right to rescue sinners. God is right to rescue sinners. It is the death of Christ through which he satisfied the justice of God and averted us from the wrath of God that is the basis of all of God's promises of forgiveness that is at the heart of the gospel. Would you pray with me?
Lord God Almighty, you are beforehand with men. For you have reconciled yourself to the world through the cross and plead with us to accept reconciliation. It is our responsibility then to grasp your overtures of grace. For if you, the offended party, act first with the word of appeasement, we need not call in question your willingness to save. But we must deplore our own foolish maliciousness. If we do not come to you as, as ones who seek your favor, we live in contempt, anger, malice, self-sufficiency, and you may call it enmity. enmity. You have taught us the necessity of a mediator, a messiah, to be embraced in love with all of our hearts. As a king to rule us, as a prophet to guide us, as a priest to take away our sin and death. And by this faith in your beloved Son who teaches us not to guide ourselves, not to obey ourselves, and not to try to rule and conquer sin ourselves, but to cleave to the one who will do all of that for us. You've made it known to us that to save us is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is our work. And with this faith is the necessity of our daily repentance as mourning over the sin which Christ by grace has removed. Continue, O God, to teach us that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness, not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as unspotted evidence of your love for us. Help us, Lord, to make use of his work of salvation as the ground of peace and of your favor to and acceptance of us sinners so that we may live always near the cross. Amen.